Isn't that a great story? That is a great story. Well done, well done, well done. Let him hear it again. Thank you. Thanks to everybody who works with your children. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love that story. Uh, somebody uh, that I read up, read up uh, calls it the tale of two daughters. That's a beautiful thing there. I, I, I'm going to re, retell it as the tale of the two daughters who meet the king. And uh, it means a lot to me because I have two daughters, and they have met the king. They know the king, uh, as I do. So um, I want to sort of continue the kind of uh, focus on sort of being like a little child. I'm going to tell you the story as uh, Father Len would tell it. I'm going to sit and we're going to have a little talk about this story. It's really wonderful. Now, we are in the seventh week of going through the uh, Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be doing that all the way into this spring. And we're now in chapter 5 and verse 21. So if you want to look it up, it's on page 710 in the Bibles that are in front of you, or you can look it up on your machine and you'll have it. And this is a really beautiful, beautiful story. It's kind of an interesting story because it's a story within a story. There are a couple of those in the Bible, and uh, it, it says just a whole ton to us about Jesus and about what it would mean to follow him. It's one of these, you know, true stories that's just beautifully told uh, by, by Mark. So let's begin at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, so uh, he's by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is up in the northern part of Israel, and the operant word there is again, they cross over. Remember the last time we heard about him going in a boat, there was this violent storm, and uh, so as the disciples get into the boat, uh, having been on the other side, on the non-Jewish side, with all those Gentiles and that guy who was kind of uh, messed up, he was possessed by demons, and it was just like a crazy situation, and then the demons go into pigs that are kind of roaming around, that's not very kosher, you know, so it was kind of a messed up situation. I bet these guys were get glad to get in the boat to go over to the other side from there, which was their side, but maybe not quite so glad to get into the boat itself, given what had happened before. But there they are. They go over to the other side of the lake, and a large crowd is there gathering around Jesus uh, while he was by the lake. Now, where he probably ended up was in a place called Capernaum, uh, which is right by the Sea of Galilee. It's in uh, the northern part. It's in the area that Jesus grew up in, in Nazareth. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, but during this last three years of his life in his, in, his, in his ministry life, he basically made Capernaum his home. The, the New Testament calls it his own uh, city and town. And there was a large crowd, and that came to be sort of what happened with Jesus because he had been preaching, he had been healing, he had been delivering people of demons already, even within these first five chapters uh, throughout that region. So he was certainly a famous Guy. And so they're all gathered around him while he's by the lake, and presumably he's teaching, which really was what he came to do, was to proclaim the kingdom of God, as we'll see. Well, verse 22 says, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. Now, somebody who's named like this is somebody who probably ended up being one of Jesus' disciples and somebody who was a leader in the church who would be remembered. But at this point, he was a synagogue leader, which means not that he was a rabbi, but that he was one of the people that kind of took care of the building and maybe had something to do with the worship. He was a mucky muck. He was probably had crossed between a deacon and a trustee, if you know that kind of church, church kind of churchy thing and so on. Um, he was an important guy. There was probably only two in the synagogue at Capernaum and uh, kind of a big deal. So it's kind of interesting that he's coming to Jesus 
um, as we'll see, he came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now that is a really unusual posture for a dignified uh, Jewish man, to fall at the feet of another man. That was a sign of some kind of worship or supplication. And uh, Jesus uh, must have been interested by that and those who were with him must have been somewhat surprised. Because you remember the last time that Jesus was in the synagogue again, probably in Capernaum in this very place, which by the way, if you ever go to Israel, you can go there online, you can actually see the excavation of this very place. Well, back in chapter 1, when Jesus went into the synagogue in Capernaum, maybe for the first time, there was a person there who had been regularly worshiping and doing his thing as a good Jewish guy and so on. And all of a sudden, as Jesus comes into the room, uh, the demon that's in the guy starts to manifest itself as they were wont to do because Jesus had authority. And they had never seen that kind of authority from God. And so the demon manifests itself, the demon comes out, the guy's set free, and everybody's astonished and they seem to be really excited that something is happening here that hadn't been happening in Israel for 400 years, that God was kind of on the move. So on. But then a couple chapters later, he's back in that same synagogue, and there's a guy in the synagogue who has a withered arm. And Jesus takes a look at it, and there's some religious leaders there who are watching Jesus because they're beginning to sense that he's not working according to their script. And they felt that if you're going to heal somebody on the Sabbath day, that was work, and you're not supposed to work, you're supposed to rest. And so they're kind of looking at him uh, as he eyes this person with this withered arm. And Jesus got really angry. He looked at these people who were upset with him for healing on the Sabbath day with anger. And you know what? I'll bet you Jairus was one of those guys because he's a synagogue leader. And so at least he's siding with the rabbi. If the rabbi were upset, probably he was. So there's this sense was the last time Jesus met this guy was maybe not the happiest of occasions. But he's on his knees in front of Jesus. He's falling at his feet, pleading earnestly with him, saying, my little daughter is dying. I, I get that. I mean, if my little daughter were dying, I, I would be doing whatever I could to save her life. Now, it's interesting, he calls her little daughter. Um, as we find out later in the story, she's 12 years of age. And that was actually the age that a Jewish girl became a woman. If you have Jewish friends, your Jewish friends may have been but mitzvahed, which is a female form of being bar mitzvahed, which means that she becomes a daughter, a bat, of the mitzvah, of the commandments of God. She becomes a woman at that time. So when he calls her my little girl, it's not describing a seven-year-old. It's that she's dear to him. She's very dear to him. And that's really precious because unfortunately, as you've heard probably in this culture, unfortunately, it wasn't the Bible way, but in the cultural way of the people of this day, girls were not valued. In fact, you know, they were kind of put off on the side. So the fact that he's here, he's pleading for her life, my little daughter calling her that term of endearment is a really special thing that this guy has. And she's dying. Now, I don't know how long she's been sick, but I imagine Jairus um, was not immediately saying to himself as soon as she got sick and it was clear it was seriously ill, well, we better call Jesus. Because again, he's in a conflict with Jesus, or shall we say his religious tradition is in a conflict with Jesus. And if he goes and appeals to this guy, he's going to be in big trouble in terms of the synagogue and the synagogue administration. So this was a very costly thing for him to do. But I guess he got to the point of saying, well, you know, he, he saw the, the guy's withered arm get healed. He saw the guy get delivered. He'd heard the stories, and he must have been thinking, maybe, do you think he could do something 
for my little daughter. And so there he is, uh, even in spite of the opposition, and he says this, please come and put your hands on her. And again, that's sort of remembering what happened in the synagogue as Jesus reached out and touched people, things would happen. And then he says this, if you do that, she will be healed and live. He doesn't say, he doesn't say she might be or perhaps. He says, she's, he says, she will be healed. She will live if you but put your hands on her. Now, I don't know who told him that. I think God told him that. I think the Holy Spirit told him that, gave him a word, something he could do, and so here he is. He's demonstrating remarkable faith. I think he's demonstrating more faith than the disciples who were with, with Jesus, more faith certainly than the people in the crowd. And because of that, it says, at once Jesus went with him. And the large crowd followed and pressed uh, around him, and it would be such until the end of Jesus' life, large crowds. But in that crowd was a particular person and not an important person. In fact, a person who had been scorned for the last 12 years of her life. A woman was there, verse 25, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Wow, to put it very directly, she'd had a nonstop period for 12 years. Now, if that happened today, uh, we have a lot of things that we can do to mitigate that situation, but shall we say there were no sanitary products in those days? This was all cloth, and, and, and it, here's the other thing. Whenever you had bleeding, whether it be menstrual bleeding or a sore or whatever, as long as you had that flow, you were unclean. And what that meant was not only that you needed to be careful about just the possibility of infection and so on. So that's why the Bible put it in, because in those first days in Numbers, when people are traveling in this huge crowd, infection and disease was certainly present. And so there's this sense of we got to make sure that, that we stay clean here in the midst of this outdoor camp. But over the years, it got added and added and added. So that, for example, she couldn't serve food to her family because anything she touches is unclean. She couldn't sit on a chair because then the chair becomes unclean and nobody can sit on it. Do you get the picture? And in fact, when she went out, she needed to make sure that nobody would even bump into her because if they bump into her, she's unclean. And the unclean word man, began to mean everything from your, you know, what are you that you would be cursed in this particular way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a, a terrible, terrible thing. Now, um, she didn't just sort of say, well, that's what I got. I assume uh, however long she's had this, maybe uh, I don't know how old she is, but in any event, uh, she's had this as long as the girl has been alive in the story, as we'll see. But um, uh, she went to some doctors and physicians, and it says that she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Now, the Jewish Talmud, which is the commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, Pre prescribe certain treatments for this kind of stuff, and you don't want to read it. I mean, it's just horrifying in terms of what they tried to do to make this flow of blood stop. So she had suffered a great deal for 12 years. So she was really just in a completely bad way. And so here she comes. Uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Wow, I mean... That, that is a very bold thing. In fact, that's a foolhardy thing to do. Because now, you know what she's done? She's defiled the rabbi. 
She's defiled Jesus. She's made him unclean by actually touching him. But notice she does it in the crowd. She, she kind of comes up underneath and touches his cloak. One translation or one version of the story in, in Matthew says she touched the edge of his cloak, which is way down below, so that nobody would see her. But you see, she was going for broke because what else could she do? But also, she had this little faith because she said to herself, it says here, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, there it is again, I will be healed. She had a gift of faith. God had said to her, you touch Jesus, you will be healed. So she's going to do it. She's going to go for broke. She's going to throw, throw herself at Jesus and, and touch him. And so she did. At risking everything because the prescription for somebody who does that somebody who has you know so to speak a communicable situation as this was viewed in the day you go and touch somebody else you're assaulting them so I don't know what might have happened to her she could have been stoned right on the spot but she was willing to risk it all because God had told her something and so she goes and she touches him and of course immediately the bleeding stops. Now, I don't know how she knew that, but you who are women, I don't understand, but you probably know what that might have felt like. Your period is gone. And she knew in her body, she knew in her body that she had freed from her suffering. I mean, what that must have felt like after 12 years, 12 years of dealing with all of that. Now, uh, she'd still have to deal with all of that. All those people are all around her, so she was going to get the heck out of there but she knew that something had happened, and this was, this was good. I mean, this was amazing. This hadn't happened in 12 years. She'd only kept getting worse. But is that it? Is that the end of the story, that off she goes, she's healed, and she figures out a way to convince people that she's well, and she goes through the various prescriptions to determine that? No, Jesus had better for her sake. So the scripture says, at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. See, Jesus has power. Jesus is powerful. Power went out from him somewhere. Now, it's interesting what Jesus knows or doesn't know, you know. Uh, sometimes Jesus knows things. Sometimes he doesn't. In this case, apparently he didn't because he turned around and he said, who touched my clothes? Because he knew that power had gone out. Something had happened. Somebody had reached out to him and had touched him in such a way that power had gone for healing. That's all he knew, I guess. So he's looking around to see who it is, and she's thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And various people are going, not me, not me, not me. You know, they didn't know whether they'd done a bad thing. Maybe somebody did a bad thing and touched him. Maybe the rabbi's upset. So they all sort of clear away, and there she is. And they're looking at her, kind of, what are you doing here in the middle of a crowd? You're supposed to be over there. You're unclean. And everybody's putting two and two together. And so it goes on to say that the woman... Realizing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at his feet. There's that same posture. She's at Jesus' feet, just like Jairus was, because she's desperate and trembling with fear because she doesn't know what's going to happen now. She told him the whole truth, the whole story, including what she just did, including what happened to her. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, okay, let's do what we're supposed to do here. You, you defiled me. I, I can't believe you did that. What audacity of you. To, he doesn't do that. What does he say? He says the best thing he ever could have said to her. He says a word that some of you women and girls here may have never heard somebody say to you. And Jesus said it to this woman. He just said it this way. Daughter. Daughter. You know, I don't know what you've ever heard from people in your life who are parents. Daughter. You or a name, 
but to say daughter. That's the same word that Jairus used for his little girl, but it's applied to a woman, and it's said with love and the deepest respect because he then adds more value to her. See, she's thought of herself as being nothing, this unclean outcast, but he says, daughter, daughter, he says, your faith has healed you. Now, in a sense, that isn't true. Now, I don't want to say Jesus isn't telling the truth, but who healed her? Jesus. I mean, that's the Sunday school answer, friends. Whenever you're asked something in church, you just say Jesus and you're pretty right, okay? But in any event, yes, Jesus healed her, but it was her faith that put her in a place where she could be healed. She could be touched by God. Your faith has healed you. He hadn't seen such faith in any of the people around him. I don't think he'd even seen such faith in his own disciples that she came and she risked it all threw herself at him. Your faith has healed you, he said. And then he lifts her up and he says this, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What better definition of healing than you're freed from your suffering? See, it's one thing to get cured. It's another thing to be healed of the fear, of the shame, uh, of the embarrassment, of whatever it is that you've been dealing with. That's the kind of stuff that only God, only Jesus can do. Yeah, woman healed on her way. Well, Yes, she's on her way, and she's restored. She's restored. Go in peace and be free. Well, now we get back to the other story, and it's not a good thing. This just happened. As Jesus is saying these words of blessing to this woman as she leaves, there are some people who are coming uh, from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they are saying to him words that no parent ever, ever wants to hear. And I bet in a crowd this size, or those of you who are watching online or on Facebook, somebody has once said to you, your daughter is dead, or your son is dead, or they told you your dad is dead, or your sister is dead. But I can't imagine if they said to me, your daughter is dead. I just, I can't imagine what that feels like. And, and, and if that's you, just know, we understand. If it happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, who cares? You're still grieving. You're still grieving. Your daughter is dead, they say to him. And he's devastated. He had hoped maybe Jesus would be the one to, to bring the healing. And, and she would be alive today, but she's not. She's dead. Oh, and then they kind of add a little insult here. I mean, in a sense, they're just, I mean, they don't know what to say. They say, why bother the teacher anymore? <laughs> uh, it's just, oh my gosh. But, but, but Jairus I probably doesn't even hear that. All he's hearing is your daughter is dead, your daughter is dead, your daughter is dead, your daughter is dead. And he's in himself and and he's just kind of, he's devastated. And Jesus overhears what they say. He looks at Jairus. He realizes what, what's happening. And so he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Well, I, what does that mean? Believe what? Believe you? Believe God? Believe that she's not dead? What, what are you talking about? Jesus doesn't explain, but that it's the truth. This is what he needs to do. But but Jesus doesn't expect that of him right there. Uh, he says, let's go to the house. And so he didn't let anyone follow him. This is really interesting. Verse 37, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, those are the first three people that he called. And I think they were the people who had seen him the longest. And they're the people who probably are the most believing in what he's becoming. Certainly Peter, who eventually, with his confession of faith that he'll, you'll hear about later on uh, in the story, uh, really, he, he, they're the people he wants to have around him, and they'll be the ones who will go up with him on the mountain and will see him in all his glory transfigured. 
So he doesn't want to have people with him at this point who are you know, kind of the naysayers. And so he says, I just want these three and the parents to come with me. And so they go to the house. And of course, there's a commotion. He looks, Jesus goes to the house of the synagogue leader and they saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly. Well, of course. Although I got to tell you, you know, for white guys like me, this is how we grieve. Take a look at my face. We do this kind of stuff. You know, we tremble. We try to keep it in. You know, that, that's kind of sicko behavior, I just got to say. But I know we do that. You know, we don't, want it, we don't want to get anybody else upset. We don't want to be upset. You know, so we do this. Well, in that culture and in some other cultures that perhaps some of you are part of, when you're sad, you let people know. You wail. You, you cry. I, I, I go to funerals. When that happens, that's a good thing. You're getting that stuff out. And it's not a sign of lack of faith. You're just acknowledging the, the brokenness. And there's weeping and commotion because so far as they know, the girl is dead. Jesus goes into the house and he says, why the commotion? Not because it's culturally inappropriate because he wants them to do the stiff upper lip thing as I do. No, what he's saying to them is, the child isn't dead, she's asleep. Now wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. He was told that the child is dead. And in fact, the child was dead. But here's what Jesus is saying. She's sleeping because she hasn't gone through the second death. Now, the Bible talks about the second death. In fact, I think even Jesus refers to it in the book of Revelation when he speaks himself. He speaks about death after death, and that's when you're, it's over. That's what the Bible would call hell or annihilation or whatever you want to call it. And that is going to be the future of some people and we don't know who that is but there it is and all we know all we're told is that if we connect with Jesus when we die we do not go through the second death we die and then we live again and so this little thing that's going to happen is a picture of what's going to happen to you if you're in Christ and so that's why the later New Testament sometimes speaks of death as sleeping not because we're denying the reality of death but because there's not the second death She's just asleep, but she is actually dead. So, he puts everybody out because it says they laughed at him. Because they didn't know. I mean, what? When you're dead, you're dead, right? They knew she was dead. They verified. So, they all go out because, again, he didn't want naysayers with him. He takes Peter, James, and John and the two parents. And he goes in and he goes to the, woman, uh, to the girl. And here's what he does that just blows me away. He touched her first he didn't touch her after she rose he touched her when she was dead now again this is another defiling thing because again given the teaching of the old testament when a body dies it potentially is unsanitary unclean and particularly depending upon how it died so there's you can only touch a dead body under very specific situations to move it to prepare it for burial or whatever but you just don't go touching dead people because then you become ritually unclean. But Jesus goes this way because, again, the point is not that the unclean is going to come from the dead girl's body to Jesus, but that the, the clean life is going to come from Jesus to the girl. So he touches her, and then he says this to her. Again, here goes Jesus. He says to this little girl, Talith, Talith. Now that's Aramaic. That's Jewish talk. That's the language that Jewish people taught that the Roman authorities didn't understand. They understood Hebrew, but they didn't understand Aramaic. So it's this little kind of family talk, talith, and the word means little girl. Just the same word 
that the father used for his own daughter. Talith kum, which means I say to you, get up. And you know what? She got up. She gets right up. And her mom and dad are freaking out. The disciples are freaking out. I mean, they're just like, whoa, there's a resurrection that's happened here. A dead person has come back to life and the girl's walking around. She's real. They're hugging each other. There's a commotion. They were completely astonished. That's a little understatement in the scriptures. But then Jesus tells them to quiet down. He says, strict orders, don't tell anyone about this because he's not here, you see. And Jesus isn't here today just simply to heal you from whatever problems are, to restore your life to whatever it is. He's here to do those kind of things so that you would place yourself under his rule, so that you could be on his kingdom, which is a kingdom of healing and health and life. It's a kingdom of not only this life and then death, but life to come and no second death. That's why he's here. And so he didn't want to become a miracle worker, so that's why he told him to be quiet, but they keep quiet. That's why we know the story, because they told it. They disobeyed him. They had to say it because they were so excited. The whole village was going crazy. This little girl was alive. Oh, and then I love this last thing. He tells him, uh, give her something to eat. <laughs> you know, whenever you're dealing with a 12-year-old, give him a snack. Give him a snack. That really helps him. Well, I got a couple things I want to say to you, uh, and so I'm going to stand up to do this. Um, you know, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and um, there are two main questions that we've been asking. First is, who is this Jesus? And second, what would it be like to follow him? Okay, well, very quickly, uh, who is this Jesus? First of all, he is compassionate. He is compassionate. Uh, he's interruptible. He doesn't mind being interrupted first by one person, interrupted uh, second by another person. He was teaching and Jairus comes, and then he's on an errand to heal a little girl, and, and a woman comes and touches his cloak. And, and he's really observant, and he's kind of sensitive because he says to the woman, daughter, because he probably knows her circumstances and her situation. And, and he restores her. And he, he speaks to the little girl who probably would be a little frightened when she woke up. I mean, where was she? She's dead. And he says to her, Talith. And she gets that. I mean, it's just, he's so compassionate. And that's the way he is to you. Whether you know it or not, that's the way he's treating you right now. He is compassionate about you. He's interruptible. Go ahead and interrupt him. Go ahead and interrupt him right now. If you want to talk to him right now, shut me off and you talk to him. He's not going to say, hey, listen to the sermon. He's going to say, what do you want? How can I help you? He's interruptible. He's not bothered by you. You may have had a lot of people in your life who just, they think of you as a bother. You're under their feet or you're always doing the wrong thing. Never with Jesus. Never bothered by you. And he's watching you. He observes your every motion. He knows everything about you, even the number of hairs in your head. He knows you. Mark 6, later on, will say Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's compassionate. He's also forgiving. He's not long offended. Yeah, he looked at Jairus, maybe, in that synagogue and the others who were offended that he heal, was going to heal, but he does, he's not long offended because Jairus comes in and says, well, get out of here. You, 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 you're really in the way. No, he receives him. He doesn't stand on ceremony. When the woman touches him, he doesn't say, oh, you made me unclean. He said, no, you touched me. The word there means you, you touched me in order to receive. And he's not easily insulted. Those people who laughed at him, you know, when he said she's just sleeping, he wasn't insulted by them. He's forgiving, forgiving of you and me things you did to him or you've done to others, things that some of you are carrying inside of you that you feel ashamed about, he wants to forgive you. So you don't have to be ashamed. He's not long offended. He's not long on ceremony. You don't need to go through some gigantic ritual to get to him. You just turn to him in prayer. And he's not easily insulted 
when you don't follow through on stuff, but he's keeping after you. Earlier we heard Jesus saying to a man who was paralyzed and couldn't do anything but just was brought by his friends, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. That's the, that's the deal. He wants to restore you to a real life, a life under his forgiveness. And he is powerful. That is clear from the story. He's able to heal a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. He's able to restore her to dignity in her community. And he's able to raise a dead person to life. And he's powerful to do do the same kind of things for you and for me. He's able to heal, to restore, to raise you up. As Pastor Tom told us about Jesus' cousin, John, who became the baptizer, preparing the way for Jesus, John said, after me comes one who is more powerful than I am, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. So what will it mean for you to follow him from the example of these two people? Well, first, they were desperate for him. They didn't just come to him and say, oh, you know, if you happen to think of it, uh, could you help me out here? No, they were desperate. My little daughter's dying. The woman is desperate. She spent all she had. She's getting worse. The crowd is desperate. People crying and wailing over what happened. The question is, are you desperate? Are you desperate for God? You know, without God, our lives are just, are just a little puff of wind. But that's what it means to follow him. You're desperate. You're like the psalmist in Psalm 142. Listen to my cry. I am desperate for you. And they were believing on him. They were putting all their faith on him. They were believing on him. Jesus noted the faith of the woman. Jesus encouraged that same faith in Jairus. And note, Jesus would say elsewhere, it's not a big deal. It's not like believing like this, it just a little mustard seed, a little bit of faith goes such a long way of opening the door. And these people were literally throwing themselves to Jesus. They were throwing themselves at him. Yeah, the crowd was pressing in on him, but this is different. These were people who were falling at his feet, both of them. And in fact, when the women at the resurrection met Jesus, they did the same thing. They fell at his feet and they grasped him and held on to him. So who is Jesus? He is compassionate and forgiving and powerful. And what would it mean for you to follow him? Well, if you're desperate, if you can place just a little trust in him and you throw yourself on him, who knows what might happen.